You're listening to a Morley Radio production. Welcome to Artcast Season 4, Episode 1. Artcast is created by Matt G, who is the Programme Area Manager of Fine Art at the Chelsea Centre, which is part of Morley College, London. The podcast is a series of informal discussions with professional artists and designers, accompanied by students who are studying with us at the Chelsea Centre. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of hosting Sarah Morris, an artist whose work spans the mediums of painting and film. She was born in Sevenoaks, Kent in southeast England. Uh, She's based in New York, where she'll be joining us today. She is an established and prominent figure in the art world. Her dedication was recognised when she became a Berlin Prize Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin and received the Joan Mitchell Foundation Painting Award. Blending her passion for painting and film, Morris sees the two art forms as interconnected. So how's it been in New York? It's It was really orange recently, wasn't it? I think uh, from, from the sort no, of after I effects of a while. The town is that came into town. Right. I was having a meeting down in Chelsea with Friedrich Petzl and uh, saw something strange to the north of, you know, coming down 8th Avenue. Um, But I flew to London that night. So actually I missed the whole drama, Um, but apparently it was a very extreme yeah, it looked very, very, it looked very dramatic. It looked very dramatic. And, and I was speaking to a scientist yesterday. They said one of the reasons it was so dramatic and so dystopian is that it's not just the smoke that you're seeing from the pine trees. It's, it's actually also the pollution. Mm. It, it's a combination of two factors. Yeah. They don't really report on that, but um, apparently that's why it looked, looked so extreme. Okay, but it was pretty concerning to see these images of New York, and I uh, frankly I don't really know what going indoors really does because buildings are permeable too, as mm. we know. So I don't really know what what good it really does entering your building because these buildings have you know most of these buildings were built you know if you've ever looked at the network of. Um, wires and pipes going into new york city buildings that it's it's pretty porous it's pretty ramshackle it's sort of like going to no offense to brazil but it reminds me a little bit of the way you go into certain favelas in brazil and you'll see the electricity hijacked right from the street the wiring in new york is all crazy hmm but but we're all paying for it. We're not hijacking electricity. We're not actually taking over Con Ed or whatever. But but it's quite it's quite uh yeah. I mean I think it was quite a problem for a lot of people health wise. Yeah. And you talked a bit about going to Brazil there. I was thinking about your piece that you had at the White Cube called Bye Bye Brazil. I was wondering if you could talk yeah. to us a little bit about how the Olympics played a role in the inspiration behind that work and uh, or is it more a feeling of structure within the the sort of power structures the, the within Olympics, the Olympics? The Olympics is a weird, horrible 
sort of dystopian ghost itself. Um, the Olympics was in two films of mine, not, not the Rio film. It was in the Beijing film and it was in another film called 1972 where I spoke with this man named Dr. George Sieber, who was in charge of the security for the 1972 Olympics. He was a psychologist and a choreographer. Yeah. And he had worked for the Munich police in sort of helping the 1968 um, moment and making sure that it was peaceful in Germany. And how he did that was by giving microphones. Um, so they hired him for the 1972 Olympics and he was quite, quite sort of radical in his own sort of conservative way. He's a bit of a sort of pensionesque character. But in Rio, there, what you have in Rio is the event in Rio is the uh, carnival. It was sort of like a, a takeoff of a film that Orson Welles never made, which is called It's All True. Mm. Um, so the Olympics is not... Basically, any city we mention in the world at some point has been up for the Olympics. I mean, that's what's interesting about the Olympics is it's a time-based event that goes around the world, whether it's in the past or the future. So when I filmed Rio, I think it was about to happen. Okay. They were under the ghost of the future Olympic moment. But the actual event that um, that sort of made my timing for that film was actually a street uh, designed by Oscar Niemeyer, which is called Samba Dromo, where every year there's this competition of dance. And it's based on different neighborhoods um, that do all the costumes, gear up. It's It's really like a very localized competition as opposed to the Olympics, which is pretty steroidic if that's even a word but there's there's probably steroids involved with sembradromo too <laughs> for sure um but it's a very different type um of competition and performance yeah and i saw an interview where you mentioned you'd actually met the olympic committee as well yeah i mean when i was doing when i was trying when i had this idea to do um the beijing olympics you know this was back in like i don't know 2005 2006 whenever they announced that they were going to do the olympics in beijing i thought this would be a really interesting moment because it did seem back then as it does not seem now it's become quite clear in retrospect but then it seemed like what would happen if you mix this sort of totalitarianism with capitalism? What would happen if you had this moment there? It was unclear what would happen to China at that moment. There was a lot of speculation that actually China might go another way. Um, and I asked, I went to China for the first time, I think in 2006, May 2006, and all I heard was like, yeah, you can do your idea. I met with like the Beijing organizers um, of the Olympics and they said yes. And all of the meetings were quite good. I mean, I didn't know anybody there. Um, I was sort of, there was a few people who I was supposed to meet and I sort of did a scout. Then I came back and realized that the permission of 
to film anyway, doesn't reside with the local. It actually is a contract that's done by an exterior body that is based in Lausanne, Switzerland. Right. Um, so it actually has nothing to do with Beijing. So when an Olympic moment happens, when the Olympic event happens, it's actually Switzerland. Hmm. A everything always goes back to Switzerland. It's actually Switzerland controlling another city. Hmm. And basically there's a contract where you have to abide by a certain set of rules. So Beijing didn't have the power to say yes to me. And so the yes became a no. I, I, I soon quickly realized that the yes that they had said meant nothing. It actually meant no. Then I went to the Olympic body in uh, Switzerland and I asked them several times and then they said outright no, like three times. <laughs> and I was like, I was slightly, um, I'd almost but given up on the project. It's sort of how the 1972 film came about because while I was distraught and trying to figure out how I was gonna make this film, called Beijing, I, I went back in time to this sort of massive failure of 1972, of Black September, um, and what happened there with Dr. George Sieber. Everything sort of led to Dr. George Sieber, who was in control, but then walked out on September 5th. He actually just resigned and just left. And this was a very peculiar type of person. He's a you know, he's sort of a central character, but he also became a peripheral character because he resigned. Mm. But I wanted to hear his point of view on that epic failure um, because he had created, I think, 29 scenarios of what could happen. And one of them is exactly what happened. So I wanted to talk to him and then I made a film about him. And then in the meantime, I guess I kept on trying to get, you know, I had various people sort of um, vouch for me to the Olympic committee. Um, and I went to Switzerland on a train from Zurich one day and had a meeting with them. And I never really know what changed it, but they, they, they decided to say yes, which was very exciting. I remember getting that email on April 1st, 2008 and not knowing whether it was true or not. And then when I got to Beijing and I was there with the crew and we had the whole shoot organized. And again, that's just one scene or set of scenes in the film, but it's like an onion. I mean, my films obviously go from A to Z and they, they there's there might be like 200 locations in a film. And there's this one core thing, which is called an event or the spectacle and you can ignore this. Many people do ignore the spectacle. Many people are not interested in the spectacle as it's actually happening. You can see people in the film who are sleeping. There's like a great shot of a taxi driver sleeping. And I love, I love that scene. But so going back to this permission thing, I had a bunch of yeses, then a bunch of noes, then a yes. Then I flew over there and I had a technical logistical meeting with the head of Olympic press about what position my camera was going to be in um, on the opening day of the ceremonies. And there was a guy there who controls the conglomerate, but the TV rights. And he was like, who the hell are you? <laughs> uh, 
He was like, who the hell are you? And how did you get this permission? Because this usually sells for like $90 million. <laughs> and he said, you're not going to get it. Like, I'm not going to allow it. And then I was like, <laughs> I was really um, scared because I had already, I had already flown over there and I'd already had the crew assembled and we were actually, that was the first, I think it was the first day of shooting. Mm. Um, I left that meeting um, apoplectic and we went off to shoot this duck factory, which is the opening scene in the film. And while, you know, while we were doing that scene, it became obvious what had really gone on. Why this man who controlled Bob, which was the Beijing organizing mm -hmm. sort of some sort of committee for the for the rights to the sort of film film rights is what had happened is when the Olympics goes in, they actually um, and tell me if I'm telling you too much information, no, but when when the Olympics goes in, one of their rules is there can be no delay, absolutely no delay. And it's stipulated in, you know, seconds mm. between the broadcast, you know, and, and, and the live event. And apparently, you know, wow. like the satellite sort of transmission. And at that day, there was. And it was actually the, the ceremony was opening two days hence. So the sort of level of aggravation and um, vitriol and tension was mounting because actually the Olympics was on the cusp of being canceled. Mm. Wow. You know, so that was what was really going on. And I was sort of getting the blowback. From it, but anyway, I, I, I returned from the duck factory, and apparently everything was okay. We got we got we got the position we wanted, which was sort of the twelve, you know, in the dial of the stadium. I was thinking about Dan Graham and stadiums. <laughs> he hates. He always used to say how he hated stadiums. Um, I hate stadiums too. <laughs> I often um, find myself in in relation to the films, I often find myself in space or in spaces or situations with the films that I find somehow give me claustrophobia or give me some sort of anxiety or repulsion even. Um, and definitely that stadium was one of them. Um, mm. So we, anyway, we had this, you know, we, we fought for a certain position in the stadium, which was like the sort of, whatever you want to call it, like the six o'clock position, 12 o'clock position. It was like right dead center. And that was important to me that we get that position. But this person was actually threatening. Why were we there at all? <laughs> so um, that was a very uh, exhausting day. Mm -hmm. um, shooting. No, it's good. It's really good uh, for the students to hear about the sort of logistical stories behind artworks, because obviously the, the artworks, when they're presented in the gallery or online, that you don't necessarily hear about all these things. So that's what's really great. And thanks for that well, very insightful easy. answer. I mean, that's that's always how people view <laughs> sort of anything is that you know it sort of looks easy. It looks like an interesting simple idea where you have to get permission or you place yourself somewhere. Um, and I am in a form of situationist, but the truth is, is really with, 
all artworks, it's not even just films, it's paintings too, mm. is that making art is actually really complicated and actually very difficult. <clears throat> and you're yep. dealing with problems almost every, you know, at every single moment, there's some sort of problem going on, whether it's with a person or an institution or a shipping company or the paint itself yeah. or somebody you know doesn't show up on time uh, you know there's there's so many different things you actually have to you actually have to will you have to have an enormous amount of willpower to make art you know you have to sort of really stick with it and not get you know mm. dismayed by all of the different problems it could be even said that art is about solving problems that's the definition of art Yes, and you mentioned recently you were talking to a scientist. Could you talk to us a bit about the world of science and how that influences your practice and how, how you sort of have become interested so much in the world of data um, within your work? Well, I love... Um, it's not that I love science, but I sort of grew up with two parents who are in science and medicine, Um so I grew up listening to a lot of their lingo and language. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, they always used to talk about plagues and <laughs> pandemics and, you know, that it was just a matter of time before it would happen. That was something that like, so when the mm. pandemic happened to me, that was like, you know, there had already been several false alarms mm. on it. Right. But Even no one had been listening day. almost. Because, I mean, well, I people like Bill, Bill Gates and people like that. And whatnot, but yeah. like nobody really, you know, in the commercial mm. zone of capitalism, no one wants to hear um, yeah. anything about danger. But I'd, I'd sort of always been hearing and listening to this type of vocabulary. And also, uh, I grew up going to my dad's lab in a laboratory. Um so I sort of grew up around this idea that you can you can never really prove anything. You can only disprove things. I mean, that's a very Paul Feyerabend sort of idea, but it, it really is the way science proceeds. Um, it's like very factual, but it's it's not it's actually not about a certain of an assumption of reality. It's about disproving other tenets. And no one would actually be sort of arrogant enough to make a claim that was not disproving something, if you see what I mean. So, mm. you know, it, you know, that, that, that doubt, that level of questioning and doubt about the facts is something that was going on as I was growing up all the time. Mm. And probably you could say that's, that was a very sort of seventies thing in general politically, but it also comes from science. Mm. It also comes from investigating what it is that you actually are trying to prove or disprove. Right. But I don't see my films going back to this. I don't see my films as, um, you know, there's sort of two sides to my practice. One is films and one is paintings. But I don't see the films as proving or disproving anything. They're quite ambiguous. They're in this sort of ambivalent state that we all are in. Yeah. Really nobody who's outside the system 
at this point. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even argue at any point, but you know, there's really sort of there is no autonomy. There never was autonomy. Like we're in we're in the system of perception and political unrest that we're in, and we're complicit with these things. You know, when when the Olympics happens, even though it is a governing body that's like based elsewhere, you know, it's it's distributed and bought around the world. And that's a fact. And it sort of infiltrates how sports are perceived. It's, it it inf- influences how athletic wear became like a dominant um, sort of factor in how, how sort of modern life is, is lived. Um, it's, it's just one of those things you have to wrestle with. Hmm. So what sort of work were you making when you were at art school? And what sort of medium, what other mediums have you worked with? Would you define yourself as an artist or does it ever become frustrating when people sort of try to define you as one specific medium or the other? Well, I definitely view myself as an artist. I don't know what else I would be. Um, I didn't go to art school. That's like an important fact about me. Hmm. I don't know how many other artists of my generation didn't go to art, art school. I know Karsten Haller, who's a friend of mine, didn't go to art school. I know Mark Quinn didn't as well. Yeah, uh, um, I'm sure there are many others. Uh, yeah. But I was surrounded by a lot of people who were making film. The school next to this university that I went to was Rhode Island School of Design. So I was surrounded by a lot of people who were making work. And I was definitely thinking about what I would make. Yeah. But at that point in my life, I was just reading and thinking about what my position would be. Um, as soon as I left school, I went to a program called the Whitney Program, which is based in New York and it's associated with the Whitney Museum. And it lets in artists every year um, and curators. And that's a one year long uh, pro- you know, program. As soon as I moved to New York, I started making work, but I didn't really make work when I was a student, what I did was I made a magazine, um, a manifesto really called Defunct. And I'm actually showing that in my exhibition that's going on right now in Hamburg, which is a retrospective mm-hmm. It's called All Systems Fail. And there's a number of vitrines in that exhibition of like different you know, different elements from that time, but also a lot of different work, you know, papers and notes and ideas that eventually became artwork. Mm-hmm. And you've worked with posters as well. Have you got some work on posters in there? Yeah, I love I love making things on paper. Yeah. Um, I love print, the printing process. It's sort of how I started to make paintings. Um, was the use of silk screen, mm-hmm. uh, which ironically was too expensive. <laughs> you know, I loved the idea of mechanical reproduction. Mm-hmm. To me, that was where painting should go. It was very clear to me that I shouldn't be doing anything else that's not of the aesthetic of mechanical reproduction. What I started in New York doing, and those were the word paintings, those were painted. They were, you know, I ended up, creating my own sort of form of silkscreen, 
But my really early paintings, which definitely have never been shown, um, are just black and white and they're silkscreen paintings mm. uh, of different adjectives, which are portraits of people. Um, and then I sort of started, I realized that in a way silkscreen was too flat, not seductive enough. And I started figuring out my sort of stencil approach um, to painting. Okay. You know, I started coming up with a, a strange process to actually create my my own form of silkscreen, or, you know, it's my own form of mechanical reproduction, let's say. Am I right in thinking you used the vinyl cutter as part of the process? I use, well, nowadays I use a vinyl cutter, yeah. but beginning when I first made the text paintings, which were shown at Saatchi and shown in at White Cube on Duke Street at the beginning in 96, um, then I just had a company like a sign cutting company make them for me. Um, eventually I started using like an automotive tape from actually I ordered it from Switzerland, but it was from Japan. Don't ask me why, but like, I don't know, somehow everything goes back to Switzerland. Um, they seem to have a monopoly on a number of things. And <laughs> one of them was like this high functioning automotive tape. But anyway, I sort of, through a series of like trials and errors, I, I figured out a way to, to paint because I didn't really know how to paint, right? I had to sort of teach myself how to, how to do things. Um, I use a boat, I use like a varnish brush. I mean, this is just a weird detail of sort of how I don't know how to paint is, you know, we use um, stencils and this type of automotive tape, long mass masking tape and I use only these varnish brushes, which are really, really for just painting varnish on boats. Mm. Uh, and they're a special type of brush. And I somehow figured out a way to use them for my work and to make this sort of seamless brush stroke free surface. But mm. I do love printing. I love anything that's on paper. When anybody asks me to make like an edition or a print or poster it's you know one of my one of my um, favorite things to do is to make multiples and have that level of distribution of an idea of an image. Yeah, great. And in terms of your color palette, what was the process in terms? Is it, is it more about the light than color? Uh, this sort of allure of light and how light can change the color of surfaces. What was the sort of thought process with the color? I mean, I don't even know if I could explain it. It's probably some sort of synesthesia. Uh, <clears throat> you, well, you know, I was definitely really struck when I was a student reading, learning from Las Vegas, which was by Denise Scott Brown and Robert Venturi. And they talk about the whole mechanism in Las Vegas of capturing attention and capturing people and how buildings are actually functioning as a lure, like a capitalistic lure to get you inside. And there it's for gambling, but elsewhere it's for different purposes. But I sort of try to use color as a way 
as a lure, like not just as a subject of like, okay, this is the commercial world we live in. I try to use color as um, almost like a strategy of like in the same way that like the MGM brand uses these like megatons of lumens to basically snazzle you into the building. I try to use light and color as a way, also as a lure, as a technique, like as an architectural technique, Mm -hmm. as a way to, uh, you know, that the paintings can command the viewer's attention, that they're reflecting a commercial reality, that they're somehow, you know, we have so many psychological associations with color. And of course, a lot has been written about this, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm doing it in a very intuitive, subjective way. You know, it's not, I mean, I I take, when I'm scouting for the films, I'm looking at everything in terms of design. It's not just at the reality in front of me. I'm looking at matchbooks. I'm looking at ads. I'm looking at restaurants. I'm looking at scaffolding. Mm -hmm. I'm looking also at architecture. I'm looking at taxis, you know, looking at retrofitted taxis, you know, you, I take, try to take in everything mm-hmm. um, while I'm thinking about a place and when I'm thinking about the politics of space or thinking about how I move through space. Yeah. And I was wondering what your understanding, I've heard you mention, um, a, is it a, ta- a taxia, a taxia? It's like a sort of serenity. Yeah. How do you pronounce it? Sorry. It's called ataraxia. Ataraxia. This exists. And, and actually um, somebody in one of my films, this writer filmmaker named Alexander Kluge explained to me this concept of ataraxia and it's an unattainable state. It's like, it's like the state of being like super calm, super, um non-reactive and it's it's a philosophical end state it's been written about quite a lot obviously it's like an oxymoron it's an impossible it's an impossible state for a human being to get to i think certainly for me um but i like the idea of 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 in a way viewing space as like you're cutting through it you're cutting through space and you're trying to have you know you're trying to have this position or you're trying to have this understanding through movement through this it's not necessarily an aerial position that would be too um you know that would be too uh pompous or sort of godlike it's more like you're moving through space like you're cutting through a city you're cutting through space in order to have a better understanding of like what are the forces around us what is actually controlling our behavior and our movements um and ataraxia you could potentially get ataraxia from that maybe but I, I view it as more of like an impossible end state, but it's been written about quite a bit in terms of uh, a realistic sort of philosophical truth. Okay. And in terms of the paintings, 
do you, you occasionally work onto the wall as well? Is there a certain factor that plays a part in your decision on whether or not to, to embark on a, a wall painting? Yeah, I'm actually working on potentially three different wall paintings at the moment. Um, two of them are up in the air. One of them is definitely going to happen. Um, usually it's, it's um, somebody shows me whether it's it, it, most of the wall paintings that I've done, and I've done about 30 of them so far, most of them don't exist. Like in the sense of they're not still there. There's a few of them that are around. There's one in Midtown Manhattan right now on Sixth Avenue across from Radio City Music Hall. Um, there w used to be one in Basel on the back of the Kunsthalle. There used to be one in the Beiler Foundation that ceased to be ex to exist. And you usually can't occupy space forever, hmm. right? It's very rare that you get a permanent um, wall painting situation. But usually they were at the invitation. Um, I mean, they're usually somebody asks me to think about doing something and they show me a space and ask me, would you consider doing a wall painting there? The one time where I proposed it, which was sort of early on, was in 2006. Tom Eccles, who is in charge of the Public Art Fund here in New York, asked me, would you want to do anything publicly, outside, exterior-wise? And I had already done a few wall paintings um, exterior, but in Manhattan, I'd never done anything. So he showed me, he was saying, what about the Seagram's building? Like, that would be perfect. I looked at that. I thought it was too perfect. Like there's nothing, there's nothing really, there, there is no space to take over there because it's sort of like too good to be true. Um, I, you know, that building was designed by Mies van der Rohe and Philip Johnson and it was a fast track building, but it's just so perfect with the restaurant on the ground floor. It's like, I couldn't really conceive of doing anything. Plus it was landmarked. So I, I said to Tom, you know, where I'd really like to do something is the Lever House, which Lever House is owned by Unilever, and mm -hmm. it's a huge pharmaceutical stroke soap company in globally. And I said, I'd love to do something on the ceiling of that building just because it's a plaza. It was the first public plaza in New York. It created a zoning law after that. You know, they, they did it voluntarily, but then it became like a requirement to have public space whenever you built and it looks like it should be the entrance to a subway station. It isn't. It looks like there should be a restaurant. There wasn't. Now there is. But it, it's sort of a Jacques Tati type space. It, 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 like, it has no function, right? So I was like, I immediately was like, why don't we do a wall painting on that ceiling, which was 20,000 square feet of surface. And it really played and messed up the way you looked at the building, it was up for maybe six months. Um, again, that building's a landmark building. You can't do anything permanent there. But that was one of the first big projects that I did in public space. I like those projects. Sometimes they can be very frustrating, but that project was like really fast. We hired an advertising sign painting company in Manhattan. Mm. They, you, know, you know, in the old days, people used to do and they still do it in midtown where they paint 
um, ads on the sides of buildings. Mm-hmm. We hired a company that did that, but did it with my painting. It's sort of how Rosenquist sort of you, Ro- Rosenquist used to work for one of those companies. Mm. So we hired a company like that to help us do this 20,000 square foot wall painting. And that was really a fun piece. And that was called Robert Town, um, who wrote Shampoo um, and also wrote Chinatown and Personal Best and a number of other screen screenplays. 20,000 um, square foot. So what yeah. was it along one side? It was on the ceiling, like oh, the okay. plaza, and the, the building actually starts one level up. Wow. So it was on the parapet, whatever you want to call it, um, of the building. And that was a really that was a really great project that I did. And I, again, so that just sort of came out of a conversation while having a martini at Four Seasons. You know, it wasn't I hadn't done anything like that before. And I certainly haven't done anything like that. Again, I've I've done other things in public space, like I've done a train in Switzerland that's still running. It mm. goes from Montreux up through Stad and a number of other towns. It runs about like three hours on track in Switzerland, and they seem not to have taken that down, um, which is great. I hope it's permanent. Um, I keep hearing there's like train spottering people who contact me and say they've seen the train. Um, But I'm trying to think of other projects where I've done wall paintings, but usually they're for, usually they're for exhibitions and they, they at some point come down. Like I did a very large one at the Palais de Tokyo also a painting called Endeavor, which was up um, for about a year. And then I think they, they might've just built a wall on top of my wall. It might still be there. It might be like archaeologically in the Palais de Tokyo right now. Mm. That must be fun getting um, contacted by train spotters. Yeah, it is. There's like a whole Japanese train spotting group that Great. heads out to Switzerland and like the the train is called Monarch and they've I I should have a copy of it, but I don't. There was even a magazine in Japan that they dedicated to the Monarch because I I titled it monarch off of the monarch butterfly it's like it it's my version of a camo it's my version of like a camouflage of the caterpillar of the monarch butterfly great so would you there's a physicality to your work there's a physicality to the process sort of using these uh boat application brushes and these these screen printing processes even the films, and, even and if the you films, said the yeah. films are quite conceptual there's a physicality to making film that's brutal yeah so I was going to ask if you ever considered making NFTs or is that something you're not interested in? I've been approached a couple of times. Yeah. I'm not really interested. Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, I mean, I've seen a couple that I liked. I liked Jeremy Deller's NFT. Um, I think they seem quite apocalyptic, the whole thing. Uh, I, I'm, you know, there's a part of art making that's actually quite simple and quite um, analog, let's say, even if it's like highly digitized now, mm-hmm. that I'm not particularly interesting, interested in um, that sort of audience yet. Okay. And I probably won't be. There's just too many, there's, there's just too much, there's too many reasons to say no. Mm. And um, 
Have you got any sh- other shows coming up? You mentioned the one that you have in Hamburg at the moment. Yeah, the one in Hamburg is called All Systems Fail. And um, that is a retrospective. It has like about 180 works in it. It's like a huge sort of juggernaut of a show. But um, it's up to the end of August. And then it travels in different configurations. It travels for the next two years in Germany and Switzerland. Um Unfortunately, it's not coming to England. Uh, but I also have a show in Korea in September um, of new work. I have two films that I shot that I'm going to be started starting to edit this summer and this fall. So, like, I've got two films in post-production that I have to get on top of. Um so there's always a lot going on. I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of arenas going on in the studio. It's like painting is always happening, films are always happening in one state or another. Except for the pandemic, of course, there was like a a whole zone of like years where I you know like where everything stopped in terms of filmmaking because I really had to get my head around you know the idea of not being. I couldn't, I made, I shot a film in Hong Kong this April. I really wanted to make a film in Hong Kong because I wanted to make a film about um, the transformation of that city, mm-hmm. the eclipse of that city. And um, I couldn't go because like the quarantine was just too extreme. You know, like it first for a long time, I couldn't physically enter. And then you could enter, but you had to be in a hotel room for a month. I think I would go completely nuts if I had to spend a month in yeah, a hotel room. Same. So I didn't do it until I only shot the film once they they dropped that. As soon as they dropped that, I got phone calls from people in Hong Kong telling me that like I could now enter. Um, so that that film has been done, and I'm going to be showing that. Um, in New York, but also at the M Plus Museum in Hong Kong, which just opened a year ago. Hmm. So, what's your um sort of studio setup in the sort of if you got like a well trusted long term group of assistants? Because obviously, some of these projects are huge. That you think about twenty square feet. Yeah, of paint. I mean, I have a lot of. Uh, I don't work with many people because I don't like being having too many people around. But there's um a there's a small group of people who help me uh, do the work. When I make films, it's um, obviously it's the same people sort of like reunite and travel. There's always like a, a, um, a New York group that travels with me when I make films. And then there's a local group wherever we're going to. <laughs> so it's usually a combination. Um and in the actual studio, there's just a few people who help me uh, with the paintings and help me do the math and help me sort of tape everything. Um, but it's actually much smaller than you would think. It's definitely um, a small core group because I don't like the idea of it becoming too large. My studio's sort of large, but I don't like the idea of the amount of people actually around being too many people. I think it gets it for me it gets disruptive mm, yeah and also the more people to manage i guess um yeah it just gets <clears> too complicated <throat> i like try to keep 
try to keep things simple, as simple as I can. But at the same time, there is a lot going on. So, you know, the films, I'm meeting later this week, my film editor, who I've worked with for 10 years, who's edited for me since the film Strange Magic. And so there's a number of people I work with who, like, live in New York who help me with different projects. Okay. And is there any advice you could give to our students about how to approach galleries or how to begin to um, approach working with them or getting their work out into the art world? Well, you have to have a really thick skin. Um, I just stayed with a collector friend of mine in Switzerland last week, and she had a great T-shirt on the banister of her stairs that said, the art world fucks me every day. And I thought that was really, really funny um, that she had this. I mean, this is somebody who has an amazing collection, you know, going from like the 12th century to now. But you have to have a really thick skin. You have to be able to laugh and you have to be very persistent. You know, you have to be very persistent in making your work. Like that's first and foremost. I think if you do that, and you believe in that sort of, you know, the rest will follow. Yeah. And the other question I ask all our guests is if you were to lead an art school or a college or whatever you want to call it, how, what would the one handout that you give out to students be? So like a sort of pamphlet or some form of resource or. Well, I don't think I'd ever run an art school. I think that would be a terrible idea for me. (laughs) I don't, I don't like the idea of authority in that way. You know, I, I wouldn't want to tell anybody how to think about the image or to think about approaching, making images. Okay. It's more about one's position in relation to our contemporary, whatever you want to call it, reality. In terms of what I would give them, I mean, I, I one thing, would I be able would this thing be able to be published by me or would it be, are you talking about a ready-made thing like that already exists? Um, yeah, it could be a mantra or some form of manifesto. It could be a sort of little bit of advice. Yeah. Anything really. <laughs> That's an impossible question. Okay. I, I, I don't think I'd be in a position of handing out any type of pamphlets. <laughs> I don't think I would want to have that um, responsibility. But what I would say is just one should be reading as much as you possibly can. And what I mean by that is obviously the news, but I also mean reading as in on a much wider scale, like one should be reading all types of not just information, right? You should be reading fiction. One should be reading philosophy, one should be reading and watching films and the history of films. I mean, as artists, we're sort of expected to know about everything, you know, and the more you know about the history of ideas and the more you know the history of making things, the more you know what you want to align yourself with. So, Mm -hmm. but I would never want to be, I would never want to like indoctrinate. um, I would never want to indoctrinate students it's not it's sort of not my um 
it's not my thing. And it's sort of weird to say that because obviously my work is quite commanding, but yeah. I would never want to like, I don't think I would want to be in the role of teaching. I somehow that might go into this sort of end game of my work, but I don't think I would want to have that responsibility. But essentially what you're saying is nothing's created in a vacuum. We go out there, we experience as much as possible, and then we align you ourselves with- You consume everything. Yeah. You have to consume absolutely everything. Whether it's the New York Times, Playboy, pamphlets from different companies, a diner menu, matchbooks, car ads, just everything. Pay attention to everything because it's all pertinent. It's all, it's all real. It's all, and it's all designed, by the way. It's not just like all there. It's all, somebody has taken all that stuff and interpolated it yep. and it's you know even coca-cola yeah it didn't just appear by magic thanks for listening to artcast where we kicked off season four with the wonderful sarah morris you can check out her work on a website which hosts a comprehensive archive of paintings previews and films and press it's at sarahmorris.com And we hope for you to join us on the next episode of Artcast. 